The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. You're listening to an encore presentation of Pilgrim's Progress. We will not be taking calls today. today in the American church and in the American culture a compounding of lies. Lies built on lies. If you don't start from a basis of truth, from bedrock of truth, you cannot have reform. Else you're simply building additional structure on top of lies. You have to base your solutions on the truth. A solution that is based on a lie will only increase and compound the problems. You have to detach yourself from the lies and find the truth, no matter what the price. Based on the truth, true reformation can take place. Any gospel... Any gospel that does not deliver from sin is a lie. Any revival that does not deliver from sin is a false revival. The acid test, the acid test is complete deliverance from sin. And yet today we have built a house of cards on top of lies as the American church. We have said we need to be seeker-sensitive. The cry when I was in seminary and continuing afterward was, we must be relational. We must have just friendship evangelism. We must make the scriptures relevant to our day. Well, you know immediately that's a lie. The job is not to make the scriptures relevant to our day. The job is to preach in such a manner and to teach such truth, such bedrock truth, that the world is made relevant to Jesus, not the other way around. It's not Jesus who must change his message. It's we who must change our understanding of what is truth, of what is relevant. So if a person comes to the church today and says what we need is a mega church, what we need is to program it with the right kind of music and the right speaker so we can attract people, nowhere in the scriptures does it say that my music will draw people to me. Or the world's music, even worse, will draw people to me. It doesn't say that. It said, when he is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. But today, based on a lie that you cannot leave your sin, we have done every kind of marketing, every kind of pleasure-seeking, 
Now come dressed however you'd like to dress. Grab a a coffee and a donut and come and sit down in the house of the Lord and and kick back. You can wear your shorts. You can wear your T-shirt. Wear your flip-flops. It doesn't matter. We would never enter the Oval Office to visit with the president, whether we liked him or not. We would not enter that place dressed that way. It would be an utter show of disrespect. But with Jesus, he's our best friend. So it's cool to show up however you want to show up and hang out with Jesus for an hour and hear some inspiring music, hear some nice jokes, hear some some, uh, logistics for success, strategies for how you can win and be prosperous, or go through the rituals of the church, following the church calendar. And we say, right on. While we continue to walk like the world and talk like the world and play like the world. All of these things have been built on a foundation of lies. Lies compounding lies. And at some point, as the church, we have to go back to the basics. We have to dig down to the bedrock and say, what is the bedrock of the Christian faith? And I would say to you, the bedrock of the Christian faith is the person, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I would say the bedrock of the gospel is that Jesus died to take away our sins, to rescue us from our sins. And so any gospel that teaches us that we can continue walking in our sin is a lie. And then lies are compounded on top of that lie. For example, the teaching is that that no one can be lost who has received Jesus as their Savior. That's a lie compounded on a lie. The whole tulip structure is a lie. Compounding lies. It's a house of cards. When we get to the bedrock, we know from Scripture the truth of the gospel is that Jesus delivers us. He sets us free of sin. He breaks the bondage of sin over our hearts. Now I want to share with you just a few thoughts from Charles Finney on this issue. He writes in one of his sermons, But, says the objector, God is unjust because he requires the impossible on pain of eternal death. Does he indeed? Then where is this stated in the law or in the gospel? When we look at the law and the gospel together, we have the sum of all of God's requirements. In what part of either law or gospel do you find the precept that requires impossibilities? What's in the law? The law says only you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. Deuteronomy 6.5 Not with another man's heart, but simply with your heart. If you read on still further, it says, And with all your strength, in verse 5. Not with the strength of an angel, not with the strength of any other being than yourself, 
but only with the amount of strength that you actually have right now. The demands of the law you see exactly match your abilities, nothing more, nothing else. Indeed, said the objector, with whom I was conversing, this is a new view of the subject, but is not this just as it should be? Doesn't the law require us to do only what we can and nothing more? How can anyone say that the law requires us impossible service, things we do not have the power to do? But, the man said, is it not true that no mere man since the fall has been able to wholly keep the commandments of God, but daily breaks them in thought, word, and deed? My friend, that's in the Catechism, not the Bible. We must be careful not to attribute to the Bible everything that human catechisms have said. The Bible only requires you to consecrate to God what strength and powers you actually have. It is by no means responsible for the idea that God requires of man more than he can do. In truth, the Bible nowhere credits God with such an unreasonable and cruel request. No wonder the human mind rebels against such a view of God's law. If any human law were to require impossibilities, there could be no end to the criticisms that would fall upon it. No human mind could possibly approve of such a law. Nor can it be supposed that God can reasonably act on principles that would disgrace and ruin any human government. But, here is another objection. The Bible represents men as unable to believe the gospel unless they are drawn by God, for it reads in John 6.44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Yet sinners are required to believe on pain of damnation. How is this? Well, in reply... I must first say that in this scripture Christ referred to drawing by means of teaching or instruction. To confirm this, I point you to the following verse, where he appealed to the ancient scriptures. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. In verse 45. Without this teaching, then, no one can come. They must know Christ before they can come to him in faith. They cannot believe until they know what to believe. In this sense of coming, untaught pagans are not required to come. God never requires any to come who have not been taught. Once taught, they are bound to come, are required to come, and are without excuse if they refuse. But, the gentleman replied, the Bible does not really teach that men cannot serve the Lord, and yet it holds them responsible for doing it. Joshua said to all the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. In Joshua twenty four nineteen. Let's look at this closely. Joshua had called all the people together, and had laid before them their obligation to serve the Lord their God. 
when they all said readily and with little serious consideration that they would, Joshua replied, You cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. Verse 19. Well, what did he mean? Clearly he meant, You cannot serve God because you have not fully abandoned your sins. You cannot get along with a God so holy and so jealous unless you give up sinning. You cannot serve God with a a selfish heart. You cannot please him until you are ready to renounce your sins altogether. You must begin by making a new heart for yourself. Undoubtedly, Joshua saw that they had not given up their sins, had not really begun to serve God at all, and did not even understand the first principles of true faith. This is why it seemed to rebuff them so suddenly. It is as if he wanted to say, Stop! You must go back and begin by utterly putting away all your sins. You cannot serve a holy and jealous God in any other way. He will not go along with you as his people if you persist in sinning against him. Now, I'd like to go directly to that passage. I'd like to spend a few minutes in the book of Joshua. I think this is vitally important for you to hear and to understand what Finney has just begun to teach, uh, to touch upon. In Joshua, the 24th chapter, he has called all the people together. He is now an old man. They have been assigned much of their territory, not all of it, but much of it. They have defeated the peoples of that land largely, not completely. I'll begin in chapter 24, verse 8. I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived east of the Jordan. They fought against you, but I gave them into your hands. I destroyed them from before you. And you took possession of their lands. When Balak, son of Zippor, the king of Moab, prepared to fight against Israel, he sent for Balaam, son of Beor, to put a curse on you. But I would not listen to Balaam, so he blessed you again and again and again, and I delivered you out of his hand. Then you crossed the Jordan and came to to Jericho. The citizens of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, the Perizzites, Canaanites, Hittites, Gigashites. Hivites, Jebusites, but I gave them into your hands. I sent the hornet ahead of you, which drove them out before you, also the two Amorite kings. You did not do it with your own sword and bow, so I gave you a land on which you did not toil, and cities that you did not build, and you live in them. You eat from their vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt. Now I want you to note something. The children of Israel have entered the promised land. God has delivered them on every hand. And yet Joshua is saying, 
you have still retained in your possession the idols from the nations you've been fighting against. You have in your possession the idols that you brought from Egypt. He's saying now, fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods. The gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. So he's saying that they are still worshipping their idols. Now we face a very difficult dilemma. We face the same in the church today. Is it possible for them to keep their idols and have God's favor? Is it possible today for you to keep your sin and have God's favor? The answer then and the answer now is the same. Absolutely Absolutely not. Now, one dear brother texted me this last weekend and he asked the question, would you give me a whole list of the sins, sins that I should avoid other than the Ten Commandments, the moral law? What are the sins I should avoid? Well, if I began to give you a list of sins that you should totally abstain from other than what the Scripture gives us, and you tried to obey and wipe those sins out, you could wipe them out in the external world and walk in legalism without ever abandoning totally the idols of your heart. And this would allow you to call yourself a Christian, walk in legalism, and never know Jesus. What I come proclaiming to you is Jesus. In all of his fullness, in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, Jesus fixing my eyes on Jesus and casting off that sin that so easily entangles, that sin that stands around, building a wall of sin around my heart and my life. That has to be utterly defeated and cast down. Now the modern church says that's impossible. And so this, this lack of truth has been compounded by lie after lie after lie. I can believe a lie, but that doesn't change it from being a lie. Because I believe something, it does not make it true. What is the standard of truth? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the standard of truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is utterly hopeless for you to get a list of sins and every night to go through that list of sins and say, did I, did I commit any of these today? Okay, I've checked off today. I'm clean. I'm okay. 
no. You have to go with Jesus and say, did I grieve the heart of Jesus today by anything I've said or done? Has the Holy Spirit spoken to me today and I have resisted his word to me? Has the Holy Spirit given me orders that I have not obeyed today? You see, we don't walk under the law today. We walk under the power and the guidance, the direction of the Holy Spirit. We've been washed by the blood of Jesus, and all sin has been cast out. I'll get into more of that later. Come back with me to Joshua, the 24th chapter. He's telling the children of Israel, throw away your gods. One of the gods we have today is the God that I can be saved and walk in my sin. That's a false god. It's something that many of you believe with all your heart. But it's a false god. You can believe in a false god. But the false god will never be able to rescue you. Joshua says in verse 15, But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, could I rephrase that? If leaving all of your sin seems undesirable to you, if it seems impossible to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. All the foreign gods are thrown out. Now, I'm sharing several things from Charles Finney today because he destroys the argument that says it's impossible for me to walk without sin. And I remind you once again of the definition of sin found in the book of First John, that sin is a, a volitional turning away from the voice of the Holy Spirit, from the Scriptures, it is choosing to walk in my own way. It is a voluntary act. Now, I do want to add another part. Yes, unknowingly, I may violate the will of God. Unknowingly, in total innocence, I may completely miss the mark of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe the blood of Jesus Christ forgives us for this. My concern, however, is not with what we don't know. My concern is what we do know. Because as we walk in Jesus Christ... As according to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, we are scourged by the Lord. We are punished. We are educated. We are discipled. He will expose every wicked thing of our heart. And if we quickly give him permission to remove it, he will do so. Because in the end, he wants a church that is pure, 
a church that is trained in righteousness, a church that is innocent and guilty of no sin. So Joshua stands boldly. He says, But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And the people answer, Whoa, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from the land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. And Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord. You are not able to serve the Lord. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. That word forgive in the Hebrew literally means He will not lift up off you your sins. He will not carry your sins your rebellion your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve strange gods or foreign gods he will turn and bring disaster on you that word disaster in the Hebrew is he will break you into pieces. He will make an end of you after he has been good to you. So the people are saying, look, we're going to serve the Lord. But we want to keep our gods. And Joshua is saying, you can't do that. Because if you keep your gods, your false gods, your false beliefs, if you insist on carrying these false beliefs, he will not lift up off you your sin. He will not deliver you. And because of that, in the church today, we have built all manner of social programs, social outreaches. We've built all kinds of choirs and concerts, plays and mime, every kind of entertainment. Pastor stands up in front of the congregation and begins by telling jokes, talking about the latest football scores and so on in order to try to make it all relevant to the people. Lies build on lies, compounded lies. No sense of coming into the presence of a holy God. No sense of awe or fear before a holy God. It's false. The Lord will not lift up off us our sin when we walk in this manner. Joshua says to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He is a jealous God. 
He will not forgive. He will not lift up or carry your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake, that is, if you loosen yourself from the Lord, that's what the Hebrew literally means. If you loosen yourself from the Lord, in other words, if you create some space from Jesus so that you can have the things you want in the flesh, and you serve these foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster. He will break you into pieces. He will make an end of you after he has been good to you. Some of you have been treated very well by the Lord God of heaven. I dare say all of you have been treated very kindly by the Lord. But if you stand that you cannot leave your sin after the Lord has treated you so kindly... At some point, he will come into your life and he will break you into pieces. And he will not lift up the sin off your life. The people say to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You are witness against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. In other words, okay. You're saying that you will join me in serving the Lord alone. You are witness that you have said this. And now you will face in the judgment of God the condemnation if you do not walk faithfully according to your word before the Almighty God. You will be a witness against yourself Many of you have said, I will serve Jesus. And then you go to your sin. On the great day of judgment, just before you're cast into hell, you're going to be complaining to Jesus and saying, but Jesus, it was impossible for me to keep your law. It was impossible for me to obey you. It was impossible for me to leave my sins. You asked something that was impossible. And then you will hear the recording of your voice saying, I will serve the Lord alone. And the Lord will say, you are a testimony against yourself. And they replied, we, yes, we are witnesses. Now then, said Joshua, if you're going to serve the Lord, the first thing you must do, he said in verse 23, throw away the strange gods. That word throw is literally turn off. Turn off the foreign gods that are among you. Today I would say turn off your television. Turn off every source of uncleanness that flows into your heart and mind. Turn off the wickedness. Now, Joshua is saying this with the assumption that you have the authority and the power to turn off things that are of wickedness and of false gods. I'm going to show you further that that is the position of Scripture. 
He then says, yield yourselves or your hearts to the Lord. That word yield in the Hebrew literally means to stretch, to stretch toward the Lord. Stop stretching out for evil and begin stretching out to the Lord. In other words, reach as far as you can toward Jesus. Stretch your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, We will serve the Lord our God, and we will obey him. It's not enough to say the words. There then must be the action. The Christian faith is not about simply confessing something. It's about acting on that confession. Without action, it's meaningless. The confession of love must be accompanied by stretching our hearts out toward Jesus and not stretching our, our hearts out toward darkness. Let me continue with Charles Finney. Undoubtedly, Joshua saw that they had not given up their sins, had not really begun to serve God at all, and did not even understand the first principles of true faith. This is why he seemed to rebuff them so suddenly, as if he wanted to say, Stop! You must go back and begin by utterly putting away all your sins. That's what I opened this broadcast with today. I, I jotted down these few notes before the broadcast. If you don't start from a basis of truth, then you cannot have reform. Because, you're base, because you have based your solutions on a lie. So the solution is worse than the problem. You have to detach yourself from the lies and find the truth. Based on the truth, reformation and revival can take place. And that basic truth is that we must put away all sin. Until you're willing to come to that basic truth, you can never fully enter into Jesus Christ. You cannot serve a holy and jealous God in any other way, for he will not go along with you as his people if you persist in sinning against him. It is a gross perversion of the scriptures to make it mean that men have no power to do what God requires. Although the words can and cannot are used here, these words should be interpreted according to the nature of the subject. All reasonable men understand this principle in the common use of language. The Bible always uses the language of common life and in, in the way of common usage. Hence, it should be thus interpreted. When it is said that Joseph's brothers hated him and could not speak peaceably to him in Genesis 37, the meaning is not that their tongues and their vocal cords could not articulate kind words. Rather, it points us 
to a difficulty in their hearts. They hated him so badly they could not speak pleasantly. Nor do the scriptures assume that they could not at once subdue their hatred and treat Joseph as a brother should treat a brother. The writers of the sacred scriptures are the last men in the world to defend sin in this manner. There is also the case of the angel sent to hurry Lot out of Sodom. One said, Hurry, escape to Zor, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. In Genesis 19. Does this mean that the Almighty God had no power to overwhelm Sodom as long as Lot was in it? Of course not. It meant only that his purpose to destroy the city could, would not be carried out until Lot was safe. All men use language this way in common life. You go into a store and say to the merchant, Can you single-handedly lift a ton of your goods at once? He'll say, Of course not. But if you ask, Can you sell me that piece of cloth for a penny, a yard? Would this can mean the same as the other? By no means. But how do you detect the difference? How is it that you know so readily which is the physical cannot and which is the moral cannot. The nature of the subject tells you. But regarding the scriptures, you say that the same word should always mean the same thing. Well, it does not in any language ever yet spoken by man. Yet there is no difficulty in understanding even the most imperfect of human language if men are honest in speaking, are honest in hearing, and will use their common sense. They individually interpret language according to the nature of the subject spoken of. The Bible always assumes that sinners cannot do right and please God with a wicked heart. It always takes the position that God abhors hypocrisy, that he cannot be satisfied with mere forms and professions of service when the heart is not in it. Thus, all acceptable service must begin with making a new and sincere heart. Look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 31. Now the question. Can sinners make new hearts for themselves? Here's another difficulty, said the man. Can I make a new heart for myself? Yes. And you would not doubt that you could if you only understood what the language means. Picture Adam and Eve in the garden. What were their hearts? Did God create them? No. It's not possible that he did, for a heart, in this sense, is not the subject of physical creation. When God made Adam, giving him all the capacities for acting morally, he had no heart, good or bad, until he came to act morally. When did Adam first have a moral heart? When he first awoke to moral consciousness and gave his heart to God. When he first saw God manifest when he put confidence in the Lord as his father and yielded up his heart to him in love and obedience, notice that he first had this holy heart 
because he yielded up his will to God in entire consecration. This was his first holy heart. But in time, the hour of temptation came, enticing him to withdraw his heart from God and turn to pleasing himself. The tempter said to Eve, You will not surely die. Genesis 3, verse 4. Is that so? Then he raised a question, either about whether God had really threatened death or sin, or whether it was just to do so. In either case, he raised a question about obedience and opened the heart to temptation. Then the fruit came before her mind. It was pleasing to the eye and seemed good for food. Her appetite craved the indulgence. She still did not have a wicked heart. Then when she heard that the fruit was able to make one wise, and that by eating it she might be like God, knowing good and evil, this appealed to her curiosity. But she still did not have a wicked heart. It was yielding to this temptation and making up her mind to please herself. She made herself a new heart to sin. She changed her heart from holiness to wickedness. And she fell from her first moral position. When Adam yielded to temptation, he made the same change in his heart. He gave himself up to selfishness and sin. This accounts for all future acts of selfishness. Now picture Adam and Eve being again brought before God, and God says to Adam, Give me your heart. Change your heart. What, says Adam? I cannot change my own heart. But God replies, but it was only yesterday that you changed your heart from holiness to sin. Why can't you change it back? It is the same in all cases. Changing the ruling preference, the governing purpose of the mind, that is the thing. Who can say, I cannot do that? Genesis 3.15 promised that there would be that space created in the heart that was wicked to give us the ability by the blood of Jesus Christ to change our hearts, to choose once more to serve the living God of heaven and to leave our sin behind. Can't you do that? Can't you give yourself to God? The reason you cannot please God and your outward acts is that your governing purpose is not right. When your leading motive is wrong, everything you do is selfish, because it is all done for the single purpose of pleasing yourself. You do nothing for the sake of pleasing God or with the governing purpose of doing His holy will. Therefore, everything you do, even your religious duties, only displeases God. If the Bible had anywhere represented God as being pleased with your hypocritical services, it would be proven false. For this is perfectly impossible 
But you say the Bible requires you to begin with the inner man, with the heart, and you say that you cannot reach your own heart in order to change it. Indeed, you are entirely mistaken. This is the one thing that is most entirely within your power. Of all things, this is the one thing that you can do most certainly that is most absolutely within your power. That was the promise of Genesis 3.15. If God had not made your salvation dependent, if God had made your salvation dependent upon your walking across a room, you might not be able to do that. Or if he'd made it dependent on lifting your eyelids or rising from your seat or the, the least movement of your physical muscles, you might be utterly unable to do it. You could want to perform the required motion, and you could try, but the muscles might have no power to act. You often think that if God had only made your salvation dependent on some motions of your physical muscles, it would have been so easy. If he had only asked you to control the outside, but you say, how can I control the inside? The inside is the very thing you can move and control. If it had been the outside, you might try until you die and not be able to move a muscle, even if you face the penalty of, of sin in an internal hell. But now, because God only says, change your will, everything is brought within your control. This is just the thing you always can do. You can always move your will. You can always give your heart by your own choice. I enjoyed reading the wonderful little book by Martin Luther in his great debate with Erasmus, The Bondage of the Will. And in it, Martin Luther makes this astounding and wonderful revelation of truth that you cannot choose whether you will sin or not sin. You can only choose whom you will serve. You can choose whom you will serve with your will. Once you make the decision whom you will serve, flooding into your soul is the divine influence of grace that then gives you the power to say no to all sin, to all rebellion. That is being set free by the blood of Jesus Christ. Where then is your difficulty and objection? God requires you to act with your freedom to exercise the powers of free and voluntary action that he has given to you. He asks you to put your hand on the fountainhead of your own power to act just where your central power lies, where you always have power as long as you have a rational mind and a moral nature. Your liberty does not lie in the power to move your muscles at will. 
for the connection between your muscles and your will may be broken by sickness. Therefore, God does not require you to perform any particular movement of the muscles, but only to change your will. This, compared with all other things, is something you can always do and can do more surely than anything else. The whole question is, will you please God or will you please yourself? Will you give your heart to Jesus or will you give it to your own selfish enjoyment? What are the ultimate purposes that govern your life? As long as you have given your heart to selfish pleasures and withhold it from God, it will be perfectly natural for you to sin. This is precisely the reason that it is so natural for sinners to sin. It is because the will, the heart, is not stretched toward God. It is set upon it to do its evil, to sin. And so you carry out that, <clears throat> pardon me, that propensity that is in your soul. But if you wish, you can change your governing purpose. You will find obedience equally natural and equally easy. It will then become natural to please God in everything. Right now, pleasing yourself is natural enough. Why? Because you are dedicated to pleasing yourself. But if you change this purpose, if you dedicate yourself to do something new and totally opposite, reverse the commitment of your heart and let it be for God and stretch toward Jesus and not yourself, then all duty will be easy for the same reason that all sin is easy to follow. Far from being true that you are unable to make your heart new, the fact is you would long ago have done it if you had not resisted God in his efforts to move you to repentance. Have you not often resisted God's Spirit? Indeed, you know you have. Your conversations that you ought to live for God or your convictions that you ought to live for God were so clear that you had to resist every appeal of your own conscience. March right in the face of known duty and press your way along directly against God. If you'd only listen to the voice of your will, of your reason, to the demands of your conscience, you would have had a new heart a long time ago, but you resisted when God tried to persuade you to have a new heart. How strong you have been in resisting God. How strong in resisting every consideration addressed to your mind and to your reason. How strangely you have listened to the considerations for sinning. The miserable, petty things. Tell me, what were they? Suppose Jesus should question you and ask, What is there on earth that you should love it so much? What is there in sin that you should prize it above all my favor and my love? What is it about sin that would cause you to say you can never stop sinning, that you want to follow me and still follow the gods of Egypt? What are those little indulgences, those small things that always die out as soon as they're used? 
This is an utterly contemptible behavior. You've been holding on to sin with no reasonable motive for doing so. Consider what motives you have fought against and resisted, motives of almost infinite force. Think of the motives resulting from God's law, so excellent in itself, but so dreadful in its penalties against transgressors. And think of God's infinite love in the gospel. How he opened the the life tides of his great heart and let the blessings flow with fullness. Consider how despite this love you have abused your God exceedingly. You have gone on as if the motivation of sin were all persuasive and all powerful. When God spreads out before you the glories of heaven, made all attractive and delightful in the beauties of holiness, you coolly replied, Earth is far better. Give me earth while I can have it, and then give me heaven when I'm finished here. O oh, sinner, you would, you would have been converted long ago if you had not opposed God and trodden underfoot his invitations and his appeals. Almighty God, I plead your mercy for your people today. Come with great conviction, my Lord. I pray in your holy name. Amen. You've been listening to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenlee, pastor of the National Prayer Chapel. Would you turn from your sin today and cast it out? Would you change your will today and follow Jesus? Go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. God bless you. I'll talk to you soon. This 